Welcome to Waterstone Church. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. We are excited for the path ahead of us and what God has called us to in 2021. Our mission is to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim His kingdom and demonstrate His love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. As we begin the new year, we'll explore what this mission statement means to us and what part we can play in God's story. If you'd like to visit and attend in person, we'd love to have you. Go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. A reading from Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed him on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed him on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have." Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise the word of the Lord. In the first generation church, The Apostle Paul wrote to one of his ministry team, Timothy, that uh, in your public worship, you should always include times where you pray for every person in the world, and especially kings and those in authority. And so today we take a moment to do that, to pray for those in authority, a post-inaugural prayer. Let's pray together. I should say that this is a prayer inspired by an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. You, Creator God, who has ordered us in families and communities, in clans and tribes, in states and nations. You, Creator God, who enact your governance in ways overt and in ways hidden. You exercise your will for peace and for justice and for freedom. We give you thanks for the peaceable order of our nation and for the chance of choosing 
all the manipulative money notwithstanding. We pray now for this new governance. We ask your favor, your presence, your protection over our new president and his administration. We pray that your will and purpose may prevail, that our leaders may have a sense of justice and goodness, that we as citizens may care about and become the public face of your purpose. We pray that the conditions for the gospel to spread around the world will only increase. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who was executed by the authorities. Amen. There is an atheism that is entirely understandable. It's not the disbelief of the new atheists whose reductionistic scientism closes its eyes to all facets of human mystery that they can't explain and instead offers us just-so theories acting as if they're explanations. No, I'm talking about an atheism that is forged in suffering, that's born out of empathy to those enduring the machinations of in a describable menace in their life. I'm talking about the kind of evil that comes into life described by a, a writer named uh, Tennessee Coates. He describes his atheism this way. I would like to believe in God. I simply can't. The reasons are physical. When I was nine, some kid beat me up for amusement and when I came home crying to my father, his answer, fight that boy or fight me, was godless because it told me that there was no justice in the world save the justice we dish out with our own hands. When I was 12, six boys jumped me off the number 28 bus headed to the Mondawin Mall, threw me to the ground, and stomped on my head. But what struck me most that afternoon was not those boys, but the godless, heathen adults walking by. Down there on the ground, my head literally being kicked in, I understood. No one, not my father, no adults, and certainly not anyone's God, was coming to save me. What's hard to overcome in this life is not only the evil that enters it, but even more, it's when we see people choose to not see. We're in the last week of a series called Find Your Story, where we're unveiling our new mission statement, the direction for the church, for these next years that we believe God is calling us to. It begins with Jesus, who Peter called the living stone, the one who has the power over even death. And he's fashioning around the world a global movement that Peter calls the living stones, 
those of us who were separated from God and dead, but now coming to know Jesus called into life, and we actually become the embodied presence of Jesus in the world for this time. And fueled by worship and small group community and prayer, each week we are sent out to give verbal witness, to proclaim God's kingdom and say, Jesus is Lord. And we use words to do it because it's not only to say enough to say that Jesus is important to us, but we must also use words to describe him out there as well if he's truly important to us. But that's only half of the announcement, the gospel, proclamation. The other half is that we are called to demonstrate the kingdom of God by showing love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. And so today, we walk into those three words, that last part of our mission statement. Would you read the whole thing aloud with me together to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim His kingdom and demonstrate His love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. The perfect Scripture in the New Testament to help us pull out these words, love, justice, and mercy, is arguably Jesus' most famous story, the story of the Good Samaritan. And what I'd like to do first is just tell that story. Have us sit in it for a few moments in that original audience as Jesus told it. And then after that, I'd like to go back through the story and pull these words out, love, justice, and mercy, and describe what they mean. And then at the end, talk about what this means in particular for Waterstone. So an expert in the law stood up. Now, when we hear that, we think lawyer, but we should think theologian. This was a man who had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, in memory. And he was an expert at applying those to the everyday situations of life. But in this instant, as he stood up in the crowd, he was not doing it to help people, as we saw in the text. It becomes apparent he's doing it to justify himself, to make himself look good by putting down this controversial Galilean rabbi, Jesus. And so he asks the question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the theological question. Who's God? And how do you get to live with him forever? It's also the telling question. What's the meaning of life? The supreme goal and the supreme good to get to the supreme goal. He asked that question hoping to trip Jesus up. But Jesus, as was his way, and I think something we can very much learn from as we go out there and have spiritual conversations with our neighbors, what does Jesus do? He asks a question. You're the theologian. What do you think? <laughs> and so the theologian, perhaps in, uh, for a moment caught off guard, but then his training and his instinct kicked in, and he went right to it, the Shema. A, a, a series of Hebrew words that he's been saying since he could talk. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' answer, perfect. I do wonder if Jesus was in the back of his mind thinking, yeah, who wrote that? It's really good. 
perfect. And then Jesus says, do it. Do this. Now, this is where Jesus and the theologian really begin to part ways. Back to the theologian in a minute. What Jesus was trying to do in this moment was to say that no one can come to God on their own terms, in their own way. If anyone is going to get to God, it's going to be by grace. Because do this, I don't know about you, but I have not been able to love God with all my mind and all my heart and all my strength for any more than five minutes at a time. And anything less than those alls is idolatry. And I don't know about you, but I've not been able to love my neighbor. Oh, I might shovel the snow on a sidewalk in front of his driveway, but I sure don't love him with the same force and joy that I love myself. But it goes right over the theologian's head. And he says, well, who is my neighbor? He wants to know the minimum standard. What do I have to do? to get eternal life. And again, trying to trick up the rabbi. What's the minimum standard of good? Who is the neighbor that I need to love? And Jesus knows what the theologian already believes. He already believes that the neighbor for the Jewish religion of that day was Jews. You loved faithful Jews who were sincere in the obedience to the law. Anyone else, those who are morally stained, those who are outsiders, uh-uh. Love your tribe. That's how he understood it. So Jesus is going to pull him down from the ivory tower and tell him a story to make his point. And the story goes like this. A man... Now, in the ancient world, there were two ways you could size up a stranger. The first way was what he was wearing. That would tell you perhaps his work or his wealth. The other way you could size up a stranger was to hear them speak, their accent or their language. Jews spoke Hebrew. Galileans spoke Greek. Peasants spoke Aramaic, the trade language. And Roman citizens in the upper class was beginning to speak Latin. But this man has no clothes, and he's unconscious. He was on this stretch of road known in Jesus' day as the Pass of Blood. Why? Because it was dangerous. It was 17 miles, and you notice the text says, from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jerusalem, 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho, 800 feet. 17 miles, dark corners and turns. And sure enough, this man is mugged, beaten, and robbed, left lying unconscious in a dish. But it is his lucky day. There's a priest, a man of the cloth, comes by. The text says that this priest saw the man. That's a key word in this story, and Jesus frames the whole movement of the story with the word see. He sees the man, but chooses to walk by. Why? 
He was from New York City. And they step over people on the escalators in New York City. No, we don't really know. Perhaps it was because priests under the Old Testament law were not allowed to touch blood and they're not allowed to touch dead bodies. Maybe it was his religion that keeps him from engaging with a person in desperate straits. But it's his lucky day, this man, because a Levite walks by on the pass of blood. Wow! A worship leader, Billy Lloyd and Justin Glutemans walk by. And they see him. But they pass by. Why? Well, Sunday night is family night. My family needs me home. And there's chores to do, and it would be very inconvenient. This is a massive mess, and I just can't do it. <laughs> Pause. Do, do, do you see what Jesus is doing? I mean, we could speculate as to why the Levite and the priest coming home from Jerusalem don't stop. But Jesus says that's not the issue. Here's the issue. The two highest Jewish virtue paragons, a priest and a Levite, do not choose to demonstrate the heart of God. And then <laughs> Jesus says, but a Samaritan, and as soon as he said Samaritan, if he was inside, the air in the room went out. If he was outside, a high-pressure system moved in. You need to understand that Samaritan and Jew next to each other in the same sentence was 800 years of bad blood. The Samaritan's descendancy goes back to the 10 northern tribes of Israel, 722 B.C., forced migration into Assyria where they intermarried with the Gentile nations around them. And so any Samaritan in the eyes of a Jew was an outsider, a mudblood, not a pure Jew. Not only that, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible as the entire Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. They didn't believe in King David, and they didn't believe in the temple. They were theological lightweights, liberals. And so the Jews called the Samaritans dogs. And they said, any contact with a Samaritan made you ceremonial, ritually unclean. Do you understand how electric this conversation has now become? I mean, the closest, I think, parallel we could maybe feel in our culture would be if Jesus took out the flag and set it on fire. Mm. A Samaritan. And then Jesus just throws gas on that fire. Because all the rest of the time, not a whole lot of detail. Now he goes into great detail about what the Samaritan does. He goes up to the man. He puts the man 
on a donkey. But before that, he, he bandages his wounds with oil and wine, antiseptic and ointment. Walks beside the man on his own donkey to an inn who knows how far away. Stays the night there, not a quick fix. And then the next morning pays two denarii, which is two days salary, which would have been a two-week stay. And then he tells the innkeeper, hey, I'll pass by this way and whatever else is due, I'll pay. Extravagant, incredible generosity from a Samaritan. And then scholars think there's a bigger picture all around this as well. Because it wasn't only just the immediate need, but in the ancient world, if you got yourself into a situation like this, where you racked up weeks of debt to an innkeeper or whomever, the only way in that day to pay those debts was, if you didn't have the money, servitude. The Samaritan saved this man from indentured slavery. And then Jesus asks, which of these three was the neighbor? <laughs> Do you see? And the theologian won't even say the Samaritan. He won't even say it. The one who showed mercy. There's the story. Now I want us to see as we think about our call to move forward as a church in the years to come. Knowing that Half of the gospel is proclamation, us talking about Jesus out there. But the other half that makes the whole plane fly is demonstration so that people can experience the kingdom out there. Love, justice, and mercy. Love. Love is choosing to do what's best and right for another person no matter the cost. Here's what's interesting. Did you notice, very subtle, that in the text and through this conversation, Jesus actually changes the question from the theologian. The theologian asks, who is my neighbor? By the time he's done, Jesus is asking him, are you a neighbor? Jesus is not concerned about the situation, not concerned about the object of love. He's more concerned about who's doing the loving. He's essentially in this story asking us, are you a loving person? No matter the situation, will you engage? Do you choose to do what's best regardless of the cost? That's love. And he's asking us if we're that kind of lover in our everyday walk through the world. Now, we know that this kind of love is the love that God has already bestowed on us. Jesus came. He's the good Samaritan. He picked us up out of the ditch of our life. He soothed and bandaged our wounds. He walked up a hill to a cross where he died to take away our sins and cleanse us, where he rose again to give us power to not be enslaved to death anymore. Jesus did that for us, so we know that love. And He's actually now sent His Holy Spirit to live in us so that love is always in us. His love is an existential existence now within. And every day He's putting situations in front of us and saying, 
Are you going to choose to love? <laughs> and sometimes it's just so aggravating. A few years back, I was at the Starbucks on Bowles and Wadsworth, and I walked in, and I saw at the tables right next to the register a homeless man. I could tell by the way he was dressed. I could tell by the bags sitting around. And I had this prompting. No, you know, I've never heard an actual voice, nothing like that, but just this prompting that said, you should buy him some lunch and invite him to our food pantry here at Waterstone. So I go through the line, I, I do it, and basically I say, Holy Spirit, sorry, pass by on the other side. Got to get to church. And I don't do it. So I get to the light out to get back on Wadsworth, and I don't know how to describe it. Something, someone came over me, and I looped back around, and I walked back into that Starbucks, and I brought some food, bought some food, and I walk up to the man, and I say, here, I wanted to just give you this, and I wanted to invite you to our church and our food pantry, and I told him when it was open. And he looks me in the eye, this guy I'd never seen before or since, and says, Jesus was wondering if you'd come back. Don't you hate that? Every day of our lives is a day to choose whether or not we're going to do what's best for that one, no matter the cost. Love. May we love because God is love. And God is justice. Justice is a rich word, one of the great towering words of the First Testament. Mishpat. It's in that vintage verse in Micah 6.8. What's the supreme good, everyone? The supreme good is to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Do justice. What's it mean? It means to treat every person, because every person's made in God's image, every person equitably, fairly, Every person has due coming to them because they're made in God's image. So you treat every person justly in terms of punishment. You treat every person justly in terms of provision. You treat every person justly in terms of care. You balance the scales. You lift the valleys. You make the path straight, especially for the oppressed and the vulnerable, both in systems and in individual situations. What's incredible is that this word mishpat is used over 200 times in the First Testament, usually as a calling card. Hi, I'm Larry Renault. I'm one of the pastors at Waterstone. Who are you, God? God, Psalm 68. I'm the father to the fatherless and the defender of the widow. Almost every time in the Old Testament you see this word, it's God introducing himself to us as the defender. 
the lifter, the one who's looking out for the immigrant, the one who's looking out for the poor, the one who's looking out for the widow and the orphan. It's his calling card. It's how he wants to be known and introduced to people. In the Old Testament world, there was the holy quartet, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. These were people who lived below subsistence and didn't know where their next day's provisions were coming from typically. And God says to Israel, you need to have the kind of justice community that's looking out for them and caring for them. Why? Because it's what I do through you. Now I think in today's world it's even expanded wider. It's now also the refugee, the migrant worker, the elderly, the single parent, Anyone who's having trouble walking through this life because it's all uphill. And God says, will you do what I want you to do justly and level that road and engage the systems that are holding people down and engage situations where you can lift people up? Do justly. You know, we have this amazing course at Waterstone called Justice in Action. Mary Kay's has led it for these last several years. I think it's been 12 years total that we've run it, something like that. Over 250 graduates from Waterstone have gone through this course. What is amazing is the stories that have come out. There was one way back, a good friend of mine went through the course and they were so convicted that they needed to live in the inner city. They sold their comfortable home here in Littleton and moved two blocks away from Mile High Stadium or whatever it's called now. And they lived there just to be in the community. I'll never forget my friend saying, yeah, when I walk through the community, the drug dealers think I'm a cop and the rest of my neighbors think I'm a drug dealer. And just to show you that obedience pays, where that area now is now on the southern fringe of the highlands, and the house they now live in is worth twice as much as the house they sold in Littleton. So you need to take justice in action, and you will profit. <laughs> People have gone through that class and seen where things are broken and see where lives are hurting. And they have invested tens of thousands of dollars in our partner ministries. Tara, if you'd put the partner ministries up, these are the, 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 the lifeblood of Waterstone and how we engage in justice. And some of these have been started out of just justice in action. But others, tens of thousands of hours, tens of thousands of dollars are pouring in. This class has affected the way people spend their money, where they shop, where they won't shop what they'll wear, what they won't eat, all these things. Everything's called into question with this question. What would God do to lift up the valleys and make the path straight? It's a legacy that we will keep breathing as the Holy Spirit leads us here at Waterstone. Love, it's who God is. Justice is what God does. Mercy is how God feels. Mercy, to provide generous time, money, and skill to alleviate suffering, usually to people who don't deserve it, usually to people who are strangers, men in a ditch, usually people who have no presence in your life. But what happens? The same thing that happened to the Samaritan, Luke 10, 33. Do you see what, what gets him moving? The Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. Took pity's one word in the Greek. It's my favorite Greek word. I've told you this before. Splachna. 
I know you want to say it, right? Splachna. It means guts. It's where we get the English word spleen, our innards. It's when we see a situation or a person in so much need that our guts feel it. This is the word splachna that's used to describe the emotional life of Jesus more than any other word. This is how God feels when he sees this situation. His guts hurt. I once heard Haddon Robinson, the the late preaching professor, uh, one of my heroes, preach on the Good Samaritan. And I'll never forget, as he was preaching through it, he told this little story about his young son at the time, Tori. They were driving home from church, and Haddon asked Tori, hey, what'd you learn in Sunday school today? And Tori told, told him, we talked about the Good Samaritan. And then Tori proceeded to give a blow-by-blow description of the story. Haddon says at that time that Tori was on the side of the muggers. Just told how it all happened. At the end of it, Haddon says to his son, Tori, what did you learn from this? What's this story mean? Tori thought for a moment in the back seat and said, Dad, it means that when I'm in trouble, you've got to help me. That's it. That's exactly it. Tori identified with the man. One of the reasons we have cold hearts and the mercy pump goes dry is because we don't spend enough time in the other person's shoes. We don't think what it's like to be this way in our culture. We don't think what it's like to have this happen to me in this culture. We just need at times to re-neighbor ourselves and get that empathy of what it's like to be in need. Mercy. Love, because that's who God is. Justice, because that's what God does. And mercy, because that's how God feels. Now all of this, in the remaining five minutes that I have, I want to bring these three words to vision. And I really want to share a piece of my heart with you about Waterstone. (laughs) I'm in a small group, and there's a guy in there named Bruce Swanson. He works for a mission agency called World Venture, and he shared with me the African proverb last week on leadership. He said, leadership means uh, the monkey climbing the tree so high that the rest of the village can see his butt. That's what's happening. I want to put my cards on the table. I want to just give you... Some of my heart for Waterstone. My passion is for Waterstone to become a more ethnically diverse church. Why? Because God is love, and that's who He is. Because God does justice, and because God calls mercy. What do I mean by that? At least I mean that this church should reflect the culture around us, five-mile radius, in terms of ethnic diversity. 13% Hispanic in Littleton, according to 2019 census, and with Asian and African-American included, almost 18% 
people of different color surrounding us. And my question to you is almost one out of every, what would it be, one out of every five persons at Waterstone, an ethnic minority. I'm not so sure we're there. We have work to do. But it's not only that. I want us to be involved in our community promoting ethnic diversity and racial reconciliation. I want us to have, hold this as a passion. Why? Here's some reasons. It's our future. Revelation 5, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scrolls. This is worship in heaven now and forever. You were slain. Your blood you purchased for God. Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Folks, our future is a multi-ethnic worshiping community. It's our future. And we're called to bring the future into the present and demonstrate it to the world. That's why. It's also our past. From the earliest moments of the church, they had a vision of the kingdom that formed a new family. And that new family tore down barriers. The Romans said, oh no, only male aristocrats can be in leadership. In the Christian church, women and the poor were in leadership. The, the Hebrew congregation, said, the Jewish congregation said, no, oh, we divide by race and gender. And around the Christian table it says, no, we don't. And the Greeks wouldn't even allow slaves to be at the table. But in the early church, it was slaves and slave owners around the table working on reconciliation. We broke down barriers. In fact, when the early church was baptized, N.T. Wright believes that part of the baptismal liturgy that was read over them was Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you were all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you were all one in Christ Jesus. That was read over them as they were being baptized to say, you have a new identity. And that new identity transforms every relationship you have and tears down walls. It's our future. It's our past. And it comes into the present. Paul Joslin was sharing with staff a few weeks ago when we were talking about ethnic diversity that as he's talked about it with many of us at Waterstone, he gets two questions. The first question is, what, are we going to move to Aurora? And what's behind the question is fair, right? Littleton is a predominantly white community, especially as you go into the higher income neighborhoods. Less diversity. Why? Because racial reconciliation is not only a skin color issue, it is even more a socioeconomic issue. And that makes it challenging and complex that we want to pursue. But I would submit, and Paul as well, that Littleton is becoming more diverse by the year. You want a homework assignment? You want to see how diverse this community is becoming? Go to Walmart across the street and sit for an hour and do a census. You will be amazed at how diverse our community is becoming. And by the way, brookings.edu, great sociological website and study group, predict that by the year 2045, whites will be an ethnic minority in the United States. We can either embrace this now and demonstrate the kingdom, or we can keep moving south and west and running away from it. As long as I'm here, we're staying. And we will embrace a multi-ethnic vision of community. 
The other question we get asked is, well, are you just subscribing to some sort of liberal agenda? My answer, yes. Not liberal politically, but the political agenda of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's his agenda. And we are subscribing. Paul shared the story in staff that day of a pastor in Texas who was retiring after a long and fruitful ministry. But during the retirement ceremony, someone put the question to him, what would you do differently? What's your biggest regret from all your years of ministry? And without hesitation, this pastor said, I would have pursued and fought for racial reconciliation in my church. This was a 15,000-person church in Texas. He said, I know it would have cost. I know we would have been a much smaller church. But had we done it, our witness to the surrounding community would have impacted them greatly. How are we going to do this? This year, we're going to start. We're going to start with discipleship. The next Justice in Action course is about racial reconciliation, and we're going to look for 20 people to go through it. It'll be a four-week module, and we're going to invite five people from our community and go through this together and talk and learn about what racial reconciliation looks like here. Second thing we're going to do is pursue a partnership with our great sister church, His Love Fellowship. The pastor there, Phil Abate, is going to come here and preach in May. And hopefully, moving a little further past COVID, we're going to design some prayer times where His Love and Waterstone meet together for corporate prayer services so that we can demonstrate the kingdom of God. And then lastly, we're going to, for leadership purposes, Get ethnic minorities who are attending Waterstone together round a table, bring in a facilitator, and ask, what's it like to be a person of color in this church? Where are our blind spots? What are we not seeing? And hopefully learn and build a team and build some strategy to move forward into helping us become a more racially diverse church pursuing racial reconciliation. That's my heart. Why? Because Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Because Jesus found us lost and broken. Because Jesus walked up a hill for us to a cross to remove our sins and to give us resurrection life. And because knowing that love makes anything we can do to spread it in our community the delight of our hearts. And that's what we'll do. And I ask you to join me. I know for many of us, this maybe brings up wounds. I know for many of us, you have more questions. I know for many of us, you say, I I just need to hear more. And I invite that and keep coming back and asking questions and more. But I plead with you, be willing to start on the journey with us. To be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. Let's pray together. One of our leaders, John Waters, sent me this prayer this past week, and it's so fitting as a way to end. 
And I'll, I'll read it slowly so you have some time to even bring Jesus into it and talk to him. May Waterstone astonish the world by our love, justice, and mercy. May Waterstone move toward the mess. How messy are the soles of my shoes? Jesus, come wreck me. Come wreck us. Change our church. Pull people out of these seats and into the mess and untidy our sanctuary forevermore with your glory. Amen.